Hello, hello, good morning, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is in everyday technology. Today we have a very nice episode lined up. Chris, who do we have on the show today? Well, today on the show we have Alex Bertels, who started her career in PR and comms before successfully pivoting into technology in her 30s as a product director. By building strong customer relationships, gathering data and leading process and culture transformation, she's developed a track record of great products and business success stories. Most recently, she has played a role in the government's pandemic response as an advisor to the executive chair, Baroness Dido Harding, where she helped to redevelop the initially troubled NHS Test and Trace app. She also takes the time to give back by working with social enterprises, with both Pivot to help the homeless and as a trustee of the Young Women's Trust to help develop and mentor talented young women. This is a really great talk with lots of great stories. And I'm sure our listeners will be as keen as we were to get the inside scoop and not just the media portrayal of what it's like on the inside of NHS Test and Trace. Well, that sounds wonderful. Well, without further ado, here is Alex Bertels. Okay, so, Alex, perhaps you can start by giving us a bit of an intro about you and yourself. So, hi, everyone. I'm Alex. I It's always funny when people ask you what you do, because I'm in a bit of a, uh, technically on a bit of a break between jobs at the moment. Um, so, I'm working part-time to keep myself busy um, whilst in this um, very strange lockdown Uh, experience uh, as business development director for a small but very fast-growing social enterprise uh, that um, works with people experiencing homelessness living in temporary accommodation. Um, We take them through like a work training program um, and they learn to make jewellery which we then sell predominantly online um, so B2C and a bit of B2B sales. Um, Before that I was on like an existential uh, millennial gap year traveling the world <laughs> trying to find my you know my purpose in life um, and before that I spent nine years working at TalkTalk Talk, um, telecoms company uh, and did a range of different roles there including um, my favorite bit of my my time there actually um, was as uh, head of online product where I met Chris yeah Let's go back a bit. So, um, so you went to university in the United States, right? I did. Yes, I did. Which, um, yeah, probably tells you a lot about my career, actually. So I really rallied against the idea of picking one subject and going and doing it for, you know, three years. I was very interested in classics, so ancient Greece, but there was not a obvious career progression. <laughs> from studying ancient Greek for three years <laughs> that I could see any uh, any relevance to doing for me. Uh, and I thought it was really ridiculous that we had to just pick one thing and stick with it. Uh, and I didn't particularly, <laughs> I didn't want to go deep and become a specialist. In ancient and, Greek. In ancient <laughs> Greek. Or, you know, and I had a kind of eclectic mix of interests. I started doing psychology at A-level and mm. I didn't give that up. And, and so the American degree system really appealed to me because you you go very broad. So you, at the beginning um, of each semester, you get a fabulous course catalogue and you pick what you're interested in. So I could kind of go, oh, I'm going to do something on um, forensic psychology. 
Um, and I'm also going to learn about Japanese religion and I'm going to do a you know statistics course or whatever. Um, so yeah, I went over to the States because I really wanted to do um, do something that was was much broader and varied at that point in life because I kind of thought I would probably go into like business and mm. so I thought you know that's um I don't really need to be a specialist in anything for that <laughs> and this is when you sort of major and minor in in things in, in the US don't you um so what do you end up majoring in so I'm actually a college dropout I don't know if oh. people People tend not to know that about me, actually. Um, no. So they kind of assume that you have a degree, that, you know, one has a degree. So I did two years of a four-year degree. And then uh, it was actually mental health um, reasons. Um, oh, wow. so, yeah. Um, and so I did two years uh, before you specialise. So your first two years, you kind of go broad. And then you you narrow a bit more in your last two years. Uh, came back to the UK. Um spent some time at home decided to take a year off and ended up working really liked work then ended up not going back wow and that was uh, and and so the reason you didn't go back that was that was a that was because you you were enjoying the work yeah I just I found I think some of it was about being back home mm-hmm. um I think, you know when I when I thought about going to America in theory I sort of said, I remember saying to my parents, you know, if I went to university in Scotland, it could in theory take you as long to visit me in Scotland or, you know, (laughs) the north of England than as it will to fly to New Jersey. But um, in reality, obviously, you're very far away from home. As I said, I was, you know, I was um, suffering with kind of, you know, poor mental health and uh, I really liked working. Well, it's quite an extreme thing, I guess, to to up sticks and move to the US for because uh, I didn't even make it that far. I, I moved over the water from to to Liverpool. That was all, as you know. So I stayed on Merseyside. That was <laughs> that was about as far as I could make it. So you know, upping sticks at eighteen and going to the US is quite an extreme uh, endeavor, I can imagine. Yeah, I like to call it pulling a geographical. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> So when you're when you're feeling a bit miserable, apparently it's quite a common thing to go. Oh, I'll just go somewhere new, and everything's going to be so much better. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, so th- when you started work, then did you start in the civil service? Is that how you? That's how you got going. Yeah, it was. Um, so I it it was a hybrid basically. So I'd interned with Microsoft and Intel. Hmm predominantly working in their um in the kind of education bits of their businesses so tech but I wasn't tech yeah Um, and they had both been working with the government on a program to get children from low-income families online at home this was back in the kind of mid mid 2000s this has been you know it's been really interesting watching it sort of unfold again as a social issue um, with the pandemic because it mm-hmm. was you know, exactly what we we're trying to do back then. Um, although interestingly, whenever you try to do any sort of programs like that, um, to get quite a lot of flack in the media for spending money on expensive technology mm. um, rather than on, you know, more teachers. Or and I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend on more teachers, but it's um, they're often not programs that are heavily praised. Um, Speaking of COVID, anyway, you've uh, you, you moved on, didn't you? So what have you been busying yourself with for the last year? 
Yeah, so I found myself slightly unexpectedly, I mean, very unexpectedly, um, going and working, um, setting up, helping to set up NHS Test and Trace. So one of the um, old bosses that Chris and I had at Talk Talk, um, Dido, who was our first female chief exec, um, she went in to run Test and Trace. And uh, yeah, so uh, a group of us, initially you know lots of lots of people came in very quickly and were assembled and I was in a position I've been doing a um I was actually doing a kind of fellowship in social uh for social entrepreneurs and you know which had changed obviously the experience that had changed because of COVID and I you know was feeling I'd actually been doing a bit of work with some GPs surgeries and Tower Hamlets as part of that and so was really very exposed to the impact COVID was having on people and so I kind of did a you know can't see a greater need at the moment decided to go in uh and so yeah I spent nine nine months of last year working on um working on test and trace and uh yeah nine months is the equivalent of nine years <laughs> if you think <laughs> about talk talk and how exhausting that was um yeah NHS test and trace was kind of even you know talk talk on steroids with you know a whole lot more thrown in and you know we always used to have that mantra it's also you know it's only phone and broadband but actually it's you know well yeah I mean actually we, you know I've, I've said that on many occasions throughout my career you know generally with software development no one dies but actually that's very very different on the NHS test and trace side and a very very public as well obviously splashed across the news specifically Dido so um in what what was tell us about your role what was your role there I mean, I, I think this is why I find the question about, you know, tell us about yourself and what you do so hard is because I am a bit of, I'm a jacket of all trades or chief cheerleader. So I think because I've done so much in my career, I'm quite, I'm in that quite generalist category. I'm very happy to turn my hand to different things. I'm definitely skewed towards digital product customer. And uh, yeah, so I was um, uh, working for Dido as her advisor. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was really helping kind of set up, run um, the organisation, problem solving. So it was a lot of like, go, you know, who's man marking what, who's supporting which area, um, bit of agony on, people can come and, you know, uh, uh, come and talk to you. And then a lot of uh, helping out a lot on the kind of comms, engagement, people side. So yeah, chief cheerleading. Um <laughs> um but you know and yeah so got to do got to work on a variety of different stuff so I spent a lot of time um working with the app team to get the app developed um and you know moving from the first app to the second app which got launched and was um it was the second most downloaded free app in the UK last year which was an amazing what was the first uh zoom oh of course <laughs> <laughs> That makes total sense. Um, but we were ahead of TikTok, which I think is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. That is pretty yeah. cool. I do not have TikTok. You don't have TikTok. TikTok is a very is a very friendly platform. I'm a I'm a big fan. I haven't done any of the dances yet, though. It has to be said. Um, so <laughs> lockdown's not over yet, mate. <laughs> no, I tried to keep my dancing private. Um, the not in the Tina Turner sense, of course. Um, the 
so there were two apps then because I wasn't I wasn't actually familiar with this. So tell me, tell us a little bit more about it because obviously it hit the news for not working essentially, or you know what was the what was the story behind that? Because you know rushing to try and deliver something, um, you know that's difficult enough as it is anyway. Personally, I don't know how how experienced the people are as developers within within the government. So you know that would be interesting to know a little bit about. And how did you actually? turn that around to make the second app the success that it has been yeah so I think um you know hindsight's an amazing thing right so you've got to like if you go back into the time back into March and like no one knew you know around the world like per side any kind of getting into any UK response etc and you know we've all got lots of views on that and you know there are times and places to share them um views I was not allowed to share when I was a civil servant. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I think we could all just agree that Jacinda Ardern did the best job. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, but like so much was unknown. And, you know, so a group of, so there's a there's an agency called NHSX and um, they specialise on kind of um, uh, clinical health tech um innovation but predominantly i think most of the work has been on the clinician side rather than you know as much patient facing mm. um and so they start you know and matt hancock asked them to um start trying to build an app and at the time google and apple hadn't done the apis so it was and so it was a it was a home it was a home build right so you're building bespoke um and you and i have some app experience in our past that uh still traumatizes me to this day and yes. um, my right. biggest, uh, <laughs> my biggest learning from that experience we did get the app launched eventually but our app was delayed and delayed and delayed and you know we were trying to build something quite funky and hybrid and bespoke and there was you know and by the end you just go why didn't we go why didn't we just why didn't we do native because mm. actually you know and and I think you know native wasn't an option originally there wasn't a native um and then you you go well actually we've got something it's up and running we're going to test it um you know and part of part of tech as well is that you part of tech is you try granted COVID is not the thing that you want to do your experiments on but there are there are points and there were points where you had no choice and then I think it's uh, the, the honest answer is it didn't I mean it didn't work as it needed to bits of think, it worked but bits of it think, didn't do you think it was trying to experiment too much because I think the first one di- didn't you have to be in proximity of someone and the proximity sensor would would detect something rather than most of the world which went for QR codes the core one of the pieces of functionality is um, distance proximity. Mm. Um, so, like a distance proximity sensor. So your phones talk to each other and measure the difference. And there's a time on it as well. So you know, have spent how much time have I spent in close contact with you? Um, so we in the UK were trying to build that ourselves, and eventually Google and Apple brought out an API that enables you to do it. And so that's what most of the rest of the world had launched, and we were still we had been working on our own version. Um, and that didn't in field we did a lot of field testing did a pilot and it wasn't it wasn't sent you've got to be very sensitive and specific with it because obviously you're informing people about whether they should self-isolate for 14 days at the time so it needs to work really well Um, and um, ours didn't work as well 
it, it worked better on some bits, but ultimately it wasn't it wasn't good enough. And it you know there were issues with it working on both Apple and Android. Um, and um, then the other thing is QR codes for checking in at venues, which is something mm. New Zealand did. Yep. Um, and originally Google and Apple, uh, and actually Google and Apple hadn't integrated into their app. It was something that was developed separately in New Zealand. Um, and uh, yeah, so we ended up in, and I think it was the right decision, which was to say actually rather than continuing to kind of continue to try and make it work, at some point you've just got to go, actually, we're going to stop. We're going to move on to and build a native. Um, we, um, you know, some of the team remained, but we also brought in some new people. Um, so we had people who had... Um, we actually brought in people who had particular experience of working on big consumer apps. Yeah. So like banking apps and Ocado apps. So, you know, we have people who had really delivered like, pro- you know, consumer products, not just it's not because it's not just about the tech. You want people to take it up. Huge concerns about privacy um, and use of data um, and managed to use some of the particularly some of the algorithm development that have been done in the first pass um part um but yeah pivoted onto um went onto a new platform and I, I think it was you know and it was absolutely the right thing it was the right decision to do so that second app worked much it's been much more of a success success obviously quite a difficult decision though to be able to um cut the first one loose i guess yeah, really difficult. And God, I remember going through that at, um, at Talk Talk because I think there was one point where you and I recommended that we cut our app and just start over. And in the end, we didn't. And I understand, you know, you can, I, you can, you, it's always a difficult decision. Yeah. Well, it's the gambler's fallacy, isn't it? Once you've spent all of the money, you kind of want to keep spending it and hoping that it's going to come good. Yeah, it's that thing they always say about um, uh, if you go, if you buy like a ticket for a play, and you go and you're not enjoying it should you leave at intermission or stay for the second half and most people think you should stay because you've paid the money so like you and maybe you want to get your money's worth right and like maybe you're going to enjoy it more in the second half and actually it's a sunk cost anyway so your best thing to make yourself happier is actually to leave because <laughs> <laughs> you can't get your money back so why stay in something that makes you miserable <laughs> yeah there is that there is that I, I mean I, I kind of that's an easier decision to make if you're watching films at home, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so much choice. Uh, thanks, Amazon Prime Video, for that. Uh, yes, also, the creation of Amazon Prime Video covered on future episodes or past episodes. Um, <laughs> I uh, did, I really enjoyed the bit about love film and some people may be misunderstanding what love film was there to do yes no that was a genuine genuine concern it really did not translate well in in germany at all they were very disappointed um <laughs> uh yeah so no and it is and you've got you know your so it was a it was a big decision um but i um it's actually something i um i really rate um the section of state for health for taking i think it was the right decision no, I think it's great. But so in terms of how did you how you put together the team, you know, you talked a bit about bringing in the right sort of people. Um, how did you go about motivating them, bringing them together? Were you able to share some of that that learning from Talk Talk? Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're moving so fast, it's really difficult. And again, much like much like with customer loyalty, like it's it's very hard to have a good 
against something like COVID, like it's it's hard to have a good win because there's always like it's like it is life and death and there's always yeah, yeah. you always want to do more and there's always more you you know so you can't really have that moment where you're like oh and now we're done you know because it's not done yeah it's kind of never done and um or hopefully done one day <laughs> I still have hope cured <laughs> one awesome day <laughs> um um and so and then obviously like you know much like the digital team we were taking a massive you know, taking a massive kicking and you can, you know, I'm probably a bit more res- resilient about ignoring some of that, but it did used to get, I mean, it got me down. I'm a very positive person and, um, you know, it is, it is really demotivating for people. So I think, um, so yeah, one of the things we definitely did was we, there was a particular period of time, actually wasn't to do with the app, it was to do with every single business area where we, we oh, moved right. much more into this idea of like a, um you know we this kind of we called it countdown to christmas so it was like a particular period of time where we were running this kind of very focused these are the kpis or deliverables kpis we need to shift the deliverables we're going to bring everybody together we're going to have a daily stand up um we followed it by an unblocking group which was really powerful so um you know, which generally is like people, money, you, you know, whatever the mm. the right kind of people who could fix the issues that were blocked. So there was something firstly about bringing together, bringing together teams working in lots of different areas. And they didn't always, um, you know, it was became a really big organization. So they didn't always know each other very well or, you know, appreciate what the other ones were doing or have visibility. So that really bonded people together, having that kind of daily stand up. And then, um, yeah, we made Good News Fridays where everybody, we would pull together and everyone would go through what had been achieved and delivered that week. And nice. that was, yeah, and that was really, like, really amazing. And it was incredible also watching, um, just like watching people get much more confident with it. Mm. You know, it was kind of, it was quite, it was a bit hard going at first. Um, and you've got, much like in digital, actually, it's, you know, and it's one of the things I, I really loved about um, Test and Trace was the kind of, um, like, the cognitive diversity, the very different types of people. Mm. And I was definitely much more on the enthusiastic cheerleader end. Um, but again, just watching people, like, really grow and develop pride in their areas and share and celebrate and uh communicate that and say well done to other people and yeah it's just it's it sounds like such a small thing but like you and I've seen it it's it's the kind of thing that really easily gets overlooked and people don't do um and actually just having that period where you you just step back and you just go this is actually what we've achieved and it's quite extraordinary that in a week we have landed these things yeah, well, I think it really helps to build that momentum, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, change the morale. And I think you can see that in the product that was ultimately delivered by Test and Trace. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I did try with the, um, you know, it, like it got there. I have to say when I first arrived into the civil service, I did try to implement um, rounds of applause. Um, <laughs> and always, like, didn't always quite take off. But we did. By the end, we were, like people were getting a lot better with the uh, with the spontaneous um, spontaneous rounds of applause that I would um, I would often lead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels a bit American, I suppose, doesn't it, to, to some people? And people frown upon it. Um, obviously, it helped us in Talk Talk having an American uh, leader for the team. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you can just invoke him at any point. Um, 
on the uh, on the testing side of of trace did you get in, of, of nhs did you get involved in that as well yeah 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 and again that was one of the really nice things about the role was kind of getting to mm. to go around so yes definitely actually one of the big things i did was set up our kind of very sexy sounding equality diversity and inclusion um approach um which was really about bringing together again the different kind of more siloed areas so like testing tracing customer technology and you found that people were doing things in their own areas but not as a whole end-to-end through the customer journey because it's kind of broken up by um you know you're thinking more in horizontals rather than vertical customer journeys um And again, we do, um, so we kind of created this idea of like a squad and we would bring people together and have a kind of um, sort of virtual um, virtual squad of people working on it across the organization. And um, yeah, one of the big, so we did a lot of user research and a lot of user feedback there. Um, um, did some co-design as well, which we did a lot around the app because uh, particularly so I remember one Friday night doing like the most amazing digital focus groups and co-design sessions with young black men because they're a key group who um, we wanted to make sure there are you know there are different groups for in the country for different regions who have quite valid and understandable and justifiable reasons for why they may not trust government um, and so sort of doing that and then yeah testing was a testing was in particular was a really amazing area where um we also did and i got involved quite a bit in um really working on setting up community-led testing centers and sites um because actually so you know i did manage a little bit of traveling in uh throughout the past year so went up and did door-to-door knocking in oldham where we were out doing um uh testing on the doorsteps all right um yeah so went out with groups of volunteers you had a lot of people you know we were visiting a lot of people where english wasn't their first um language um and went to a mosque in um Bradford and looked at they were doing um they weren't actually doing testing at the time but looked they were doing a lot of um testing engagement and they had had a pop-up there and yeah went to a Gurdwara in Wolverhampton where they set up the first kind of proper community-led rapid testing site which is amazing and was this uh you know how how did this sort of work in the response to the sort of early failures of uh, of testing, i.e., not getting enough tests, or having the whole um, scenario where you'd look up a testing site to go and get tested, and it would be, you know, the other end of the country. You know, how, how is it, was there a particular like the digital app? Was there a particular moment where that turned around and you were able to implement something different for the testing side? Yeah, and I think some of it is like some of it is maturity curves that you go through and yeah. also like pace. So um, there was a particular point in uh, in September when there was a like demand went mental, <laughs> absolutely yeah. mental. And, you know, I know there's like a lot of stuff that said that's like, oh, you know, they didn't realize that kids going back to school was going to increase demand. And it's not that isn't true we you know had forecast demand but it was like majorly over the top of what any modeling had expected Mm. and it was the case of just suddenly you know uh, quite understandably like everything was quite new so there were you know there were 
scenarios where you shouldn't get tested so if you've been in contact with somebody you actually the clinical advice is don't get a test you need to stay home because you might test negative that day but you can still be carrying the disease and go on to develop it and a test isn't going to tell you anything at that point you just have to self-isolate and it's really frustrating and also it goes against human instincts because if I have heard that I could have been exposed and I might be sick I want to go get a test right like that's a natural response and so somebody saying to you no (laughs) don't you have to just stay at home you can't get a test is really difficult for people and um so there was stuff there like so that example was just because actually we built up such a capacity that we always had more capacity for tests than there have been demand so by the time we kind of got built up the capacity from the early the fact there was none in the beginning then we had lots of capacity and the issue was not enough people getting tested. So people had never been directed to a centre that was far away from them. Mm. So nobody had ever thought to implement a rule that said don't show results over X distance because it mm. had just never, it never happened. There'd always been a test available somewhere close to you. So that's an example of where it was just one of those things where it was like, of course it should have a rule that says, don't show a test site that's more than I don't know 15 miles or whatever you know from your result and you'd have that rule built in yeah yeah absolutely but it just never it had never been needed and you'd been building this really quickly from scratch in the space of a couple of months and so it just hadn't happened well yeah I guess there is that isn't there this this whole thing had been this whole organization had been built from scratch in a very short space of time. There was it started from nothing, right? There wasn't it didn't come out of something in particular. No, no, and it was an amalgamation of kind of different things. So uh, the Department for Health had set up testing, so that was kind of you know that was that was more established. Tracing didn't exist um, mm. particularly. Um, so I started working there. I think it was monday the 11th of may i want to say wow and it's um, quite late really yeah we officially launched at the end of may mm. um with like 20 odd thousand contact tracers but that you know that hadn't been stood up as a service and testing capacity was i don't know it was under 100 it was definitely under 100 it was no it was a hundred thousand um, and then by the end of October, it had, we were up at 600, 550, 600,000 capacity. Um, so it was a rapid growth in the organization. Yeah. And yeah, and, you know, when you're growing like that, you will have, you will have teething things. And, you know, particularly when you're also dealing with something that's so unknown. Hmm. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I was just reading in the news today that they're actually planning to ramp down uh in test and trace and actually the because there's an intention now to start opening things up again which you know read into that what you will is that whether that's a good idea or not but um uh in, t- in terms of ramping that down do you think they're going to is there is there a plan there do you think or should there be a plan to keep something like this available because we've known that we were due a pandemic. We didn't know what sort of pandemic it was, but, you know, there was a whole lot of research that was done early 2000s that said, okay, we're, you know, every 100 years we have a pandemic. Last one was in 1918. We're probably due one. Um, You know, why did we not have anything like this in place? It's a really good question and one that 
I imagine if you have ever worked in a tech department, you have times where you go, why the hell have we not sorted out investment in proper platforms or like, you know, those really boring, but really important. Mm. And, you know, they, I guess, like, you know, they often stuff like that gets deprioritized, right? So there is, I, you know, I would hope that um, a I hope people don't have short memories with it. I think there's, you know, so there's um, there's a lot of like underlying tech infrastructure that I think could be, should be done. So like actually, you know, parts of the NHS, NHS labs are really, really disparate. So joining mm. up data from all of them is very complicated and you're building a lot of that from, you were building a lot of that from scratch. So there's definitely, um, there's definitely investment um, that needs to be done in stuff that, you need to do that kind of tech investment um and I think you know I wouldn't um I wouldn't stress too much about it I think one of the you know one of the benefits of having a wide range of um, people involved in test and trace and I know it's one of the really criticized things about it is that you are you've built the flexibility into the model so the number of contact tracers is something that has gone up and down and that's very deliberate because when you have um when you've got much higher prevalence, you obviously need more people, but when you have lower prevalence, you need less people. And so the flex is something you want to be able to design into your contracts and into your systems um, so that you can bring people on board. And I think the other thing is, um, you know, again, you go, there's a lot of this kind of talk about the, you know, the tension between national versus local. And the, you know, the reality is actually the two, the two really should be and are in many cases working really well together, mm-hmm. but like ramping up the public health expertise and um, resource sort of regionally and locally, I think is something that you know, hopefully we'll see public health get more of a uh, more investment after, um, you know, after the pandemic as well. So we build up that resilience in future because, um the reality is there have been points where um you know local teams would have been like really overwhelmed if they were having to do it on their own mm-hmm. um and you know even the you know and in, in the local areas that are doing their, some of their own work they would often they would still have the ability to pass cases back to be dealt with by the national team when they were struggling and you know so i think that it's that kind of how do you how do you have a model that allows you to flex um but again you know one of the benefits was building a um I read a really amazing article today, actually, in the eye papers about the um, two people who've been two of the people who've been doing the coronavirus data dashboard. And they're amazing. I got to work loads with the data team and the data dashboard team. I loved it. And um, we bring out all these fancy new heat maps and new new pieces of data and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it was only because we built a like national single contact tracing data system that meant you got all of that data and the local teams would use it as well and so there are things like that that you go actually you do want to be able to have some of that core underlying tech that means you have a you do have a national view you can see you can spot trends you can analyze the data you can see where things are happening you can pass data around um and yeah there's definitely there are you know when you saw issues with data a lot of that was because the the platforms and processes that were being used had not been upgraded, invested in, you know, they were, they were, they were designed for something else in the first place. They were designed for, you know, I don't know. um, I'm not sure if I can give you, but you know, like 
STD transmission, you know, is it like oh, another yeah. infectious disease, like not something of the scale of COVID. Mm. And so I think there's a bit about, um, you know, I became much more passionate about it after working with you and, um, and uh, doing digital, but there's like some of the really seemingly boring, like invest in your tech guys get your environments up to date like this stuff really matters and I know you don't understand why necessarily and you can't see the direct business benefit but it's like you've got to also sort some of that stuff out well I think that's part of the problem isn't it is is figuring out how to communicate some of this stuff to senior leaders that don't necessarily understand why is that important you know like I have an app why do I need to have better environments for it or something along those lines yeah and I think that was that was one of the things that I think you know I I do like to think that I brought to the digital department was like spending time with the developers and really understanding why oh I agree I mean you even spent some time doing some javascripting didn't you (laughs) learning how to code yeah and then you know but then explaining it to the business like I remember one of the when we were trying to get the build business case to get people to sign off our content management system Mm mm-hmm um, implementing the new CMS. Which sounds um, Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Love our content management system. <laughs> um, and I remember, like, I literally was explaining it to people, like, um, every time we do a new promotion, it's like a Word document where we overwrite the file and the previous file has disappeared. So we have to recreate it and then trying to talk to them about actually our content management system will be like Google Docs and we can all do it and the history will always be there, you know, and just like trying to get people to understand why stuff like that was important. Yeah, and then absolutely. and then they were like, hang on, so that means that actually like you'll be able to get your promotions to market in five days, not two weeks. Yes, okay, cool. Um, but when it's when it's only heard as, oh, the code's really bad and it's really tough and we could be better and we're really behind and it's not very good and it's a bit, it causes problems. That's, I I think for, you know, as you said, for the kind of senior leadership or, you know, kind of commercial business people, that's quite hard. There are lots of things that you would like to spend money on fix. Like it's very hard for you to kind of go, yes, that should be something we invest in over something else. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've got to, you know, find a way of selling it. Before we before we close up, I want to talk about you being a woman in tech that didn't start in tech. But how have you found your experience now being a person who crosses both lines? So you can be on the PR and the motivation side. You now understand the tech side. How how has your experience been being being a woman in tech? Like honestly, it's been some of it's it's been great um I I think there is like I'm a bit (laughs) kooky is that is that a good word I don't know you know and um (laughs) I'll back you up on that one yes yeah yeah kooky um and um you know I think like there are definitely you find some personalities in tech in their own like very different to me but in their own ways Mm. and so I, I really like you get a really you get a very interesting range of people and I really love that and I felt very comfortable in there I think um 
I also definitely really experienced the, as I said, I had the double thing of like being a woman and being um, not having a tech, you know, a tech digital background. Mm. It was, there were definitely real points where I had people who did not listen to what I had to say or take me seriously or really think I knew, thought I knew what I was talking about and would consistently want to hear it from a man mm. <laughs> or you know and uh, to be fair like and there are times that you have to go like I get it if you want to hear it from an engineer yeah um yeah. but also like I'm not gonna tell you something that has no basis in any that I'm just making up on my own you know I will have been through this with the guys or you know the team or whatever um, and I definitely, I think there were points where it was just kind of, I'm just not really interested in what you have to say. And I, mm. you know, experienced a lot of that. Um, you know, I got the odd kind of, oh, like speak on our panel because you're female and our female dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of go, mm, I sort of hate this, but like, it, and then, it, you know, for me, I like, I remember when, um, you know, like you, you were watching all of the like fast growing tech companies, rise of the like amazing multi-billionaire coders in Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And you're kind of going, oh God, like, why didn't they teach me coding at school? Like, why, why didn't I know that was a career path that was open to me? And there was such a sense of like, you had to do this from when you were young and otherwise it is closed to you and I think even like you see that even with the whole like we need to teach the children how to code and but there's not really much focus on actually people later in their careers it's kind of like you've got to get in young like and um I just you know I don't like the idea that something's closed off to me because Mm. I just didn't start it when I was young and we grow and like develop as people and um, you know, you have different interest areas and things matter to you in different ways. And it's really cool and really interesting and it's fun. And I love the pace and the delivery and the success and the like creating something. Um, so I'm I'm a huge believer on being able to um, move into things later in life. Um, and so that was a that was a really special opportunity. Um, and you know, I always used to say this, and I, you know, obviously used to joke, but it was like, you know, Joe, our third, I'm not sure I'd trust him to do any coding. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, obviously, you know, I used to say that quite a lot. And it's like, well, I'm not sure you trust Joe to code any more right now than you would me, because Joe hasn't actually coded for a very long time. Yeah, and so you're you know you you and you you're after different a different mix of skill sets and also you want people who think about things differently Mm. um you know so um I think you know in the same way devs and engineers can you know sometimes feel like people don't listen to them or respect or value their opinion um there's also a kind of you've got to respect and value the opinions of people who don't think like you, it's got to go both ways. Right. Mm. Um, that said, I did for a little bit after leaving talk talk, try and, you know, I wouldn't say it was like hugely, um, it wasn't, you know, the most active like job hunt I've ever done in my life. And in the end, I actually decided I really wanted to travel. But I do also remember that, um, you know, when I tried to speak to a few recruiters about getting product roles in other companies, 
um, and I was looking for something more in the kind of tech for good space, there was a kind of like, oh, can't really handle your CV. Yeah, you haven't yeah. actually worked in it for that long. Like really, you haven't not sure how to position you. Career, yeah, yeah, like you haven't done product for your whole life. So how can we kind of put you forward? And you know. I think that's a really difficult thing, isn't it? Because especially that's that's the hard thing about about you not having made that decision when you were eighteen, right? Which is a silly thing anyway that you would have to make a decision about what you want your career to be when you're that young. Um, especially if you're in a position like you were, where you 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 make that immediate left turn and you become a, really an immediate hit, a success in that role. It then becomes it does become difficult to move from one company to another and to take that reputation with you, I guess, because because of how it works in the marketplace. Because if people knew more, and obviously it's a great thing that you're on this podcast, because hopefully people will now know more about how great you are in this role. Um, but it's difficult, I guess, to see that on a piece of paper. Yes, I think, yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's, um, it is, it's one of the benefits about staying in a company as you build up trust and people then go, actually, you've got the right, you've got like... Mm the other skills and yes you don't have the specialism but we think you can with some application and the right kind of people and support learn that um and I love the learning like my head used to hurt do you remember when you were still trying to talk to me at like in the evening I'd be like Chris I can't like I can't take anymore because like I was just learning like the stretch in what I was learning was amazing I was knackered every night from like the brain energy but it was so rewarding to be like learning something new um and uh but yeah and you know that's one of the things I'm always I'll always be super grateful to um uh you know to talk talk for was giving me the opportunity to move around but you're right it is then hard to move into another which is why I think you know and this is really um this is also has bad sides to it is why um you know it's where the importance of your network comes in people getting to meet you seeing if you're the right fit Mm. um you know as opposed to applying cold for jobs with a written piece of paper that doesn't really you know when you when you've got two in front of you and you've got somebody who's only ever done digital and somebody who moved into it very late I can kind of rationally understand why you pick the first over the latter no I think the network is incredibly important and a a follow-up question to that to the women in tech question is has that been any different for you than just being a woman in business I think there are parts of some, I think there are some similarities. Yes, 100%. And I did, there were moments actually where when I was in the business side before tech, where I, I would be in meetings and I would say something and then, and no one would really listen. And then a man would say it and they'd be like, that's in a slightly different way. And they'd be like, that's an amazing idea. And I would just go, what? Like, I just don't understand. I don't understand. Awful, <laughs> I just said that. I just said that. <laughs> um, and, and I should really caveat this by saying that like 98% of my experience was really positive, but yeah, there was yeah. a kind of, there was a slightly, oh, that you would get a bit of arrogance, I think, sometimes from some of the, some of the people I came across in the tech space and the kind of like little girl, you, you know, you wouldn't possibly be able to like wrap your head around this and mm-hmm. just not, you know, uh, so it was. I think some of it was similar, but there was slight new, there was slightly different, different nuances nuance, yeah. to it. It's interesting you mentioned about people people saying 
is someone else who's more established in a business repeating something not necessarily a man but like you know saying something um because i had a similar experience when i was you know very young in business that i would have someone older more established say the same thing you know so i think it can work with age as well but i think it must happen i think it can happen for any age if you're a woman yes yeah that that would be the difference Um, yeah, and I yeah, you're right, and I've experienced it also on the age thing as well. Mm. Um, I think I don't know. I think some of it as well. Like one of the things I, and again, you know, and I really appreciated this. You know, I'd done at various points in my career. You know, the whole thing where you like you do your colours or your you know your style or your you know Myers Briggs oh, and you, yes, yeah. you you know whatever, and you kind of work out what you're like and you know, and how you're meant to slightly adapt yourself to, you know, be able to work effectively with people who are different and all of that kind of stuff. And it's all very nice, like theoretically. Um, But in digital, like I never, I had never worked with so many people who thought and communicated and so differently from me. Mm, Yeah. Like on the face of it, we just wouldn't or shouldn't get along. Yeah, well, it's a mix. You get a real mix of personalities in uh, in the engineering space. Such a mix of personalities, like such a mix, and and some people who are very um, are like also really comfortable with being like that as well. Mm. You know, with whatever their their particular thing is. Like, there is a bit of a sense of um, I can rock up at ten thirty kind of having not washed I'm being really deliberate (laughs) although I think there were one or two where it was always a little bit questionable this is just one example right you know everybody is comfortable I think in their skin in that scenario though I think that's what what you're saying isn't it because you because you um I think there is a certain element of it where it's a very skilled role and you're highly desirable essentially the company needs you to function and so you can be a bit more open about how you react or or behave or you know dress or and actually Sam and I have talked about this I think we've already talked about this on, on, on at least one of the episodes we've talked about how diverse talk talk itself was in terms of you know there were you you could find many women you could find many sexualities you could find um people who would dress up as all sorts of crazy things. You'd have many different colours. You'd have many different races. It was a real mix of people, probably more so than um, than anywhere else I've worked, actually. And I, by the way, I like, I love all of this. Like, and it was, you know, and it actually I found working in online, like made me a lot more comfortable with it being different as well. Mm. Um, you know, I wasn't a morning person, but in commercial, all my team were in, you know, everyone around me, all my peers, everyone was in at like, 7 30 quarter to eight and I I'm just not a morning person I'm a night owl and so in the online team I started shifting my working a bit more and um and you know we just like we created our own our own rituals we did our med- do you remember we used to do our meditation um <laughs> we out that meditation group yes I do was, like, was like a master meditator so we had a little I meditation do. group and everyone just used to find it really weird that they'd walk past us like sitting in a all of our offices were glass fronted. So you effectively look like you were sat in a big glass box, just sat in there with our legs crossed, like, you yeah, know, holding that, yeah. up, doing meditation. Cool. Um, but yeah, no, so sorry. So going back to the original train of thought, like working in digital with such a diverse group of people from 
and particularly a diverse group of people from me really gave me the opportunity to think about and learn how to like communicate with with people and I found that actually a lot of the time when I'd have tension with people um and there was like you know and there were a couple of, I'm not you know like I didn't get on with everyone there were a couple of people I had a bit of you know like friction with yeah it's not um, all love and unicorns is it it wasn't all love and unicorns and there were some times <laughs> when I would get really really oh I'm not sure if that's fair or not whether it's pre or post watershed but um I think it's but, both actually because it's <laughs> on demand well there you go <laughs> um so, but a lot of it came down to actually just like, we just weren't communi- like we just weren't talking to each other effectively. Mm. But I think for, for you as well, obviously, you know, you're the same age as me. We were born into a, into a world where the, there was a female leader leading the country. Um, you know, you spent nine years in Talk Talk, which had two female CEOs. You've just been at Test and Trace with, again, with a female a female leader, the same female leader, one of the same female leaders, interestingly enough. Um, have you ever felt like there was a, how much have you felt that there's like a cultural block or a glass ceiling that you can't break through? Um, you know, how much have you felt that? Again, I think I've been, I mean, I do genuinely think I've been really lucky. Mm. Um, but I, you know, predominantly very lucky. I think I still, there have been certain points in my career where I think it's been, um, I've noticed it more. So like, I definitely have had, a, you know, one or two points where people have called, it might surprise you, but people call me out on my anger. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, wow. you know, actually I'm not looking back on them. I'm not particularly convinced that it was anything that, that extreme versus, you know, actually if like a man had lost his rag, I think it was just because there's that kind of jarring. You don't expect a woman to sort of do that. I think, you know, I think you, as you said, you and I are the same age and we both got to, you know, senior positions, um, uh, a sort of, a, you know, a relatively, you know, could be perceived to be a relatively young age. So I yeah, think yeah. The, youth same sort dynamic, of time, really. the young dynamic comes in as well. Um, you know, I also find that... Um, I actually find being a single female tough because you don't have the, you get to a point where a lot of your peers are married with children and you, mm. you know, can't participate in some of that. And so that I actually find quite an alienating factor that, you know, not fitting a typical 2.4 mold. But, you know, it's also was really lucky with talk talk that I, I very much then learned how to be comfortable with who I am and they really allowed that and accepted it and you know and it was I was laughed at a lot um I hope most of the time in an affectionate way um and people did tell me I was way too loud and completely batshit crazy but you know for the most I think part, all those things are true <laughs> thanks Chris <laughs> but in a great way in a great in way. In a great way, yeah. And um, so, you know, again, but like I, and I don't want to do the like, I'm just really not interested in doing something that, um, doing something where I have to hide hmm. those parts of myself. So I, I, you know, I won't go and participate in, I don't want to be in banking. Like it's never repeat. Do you know what I mean? That to me is just like the, you know, the symbol of like where I feel like I wouldn't be allowed to be myself. 
itself. So I, I think, you know, you definitely get it in different um, different places. But also, I think some of it just comes down to like, I like people, you know, I find people interesting. I like chatting to them. I am a bit of a geek myself. I like to laugh. And so I think some of it is just um, actually, if you can connect with people just like as another human, I think it takes away some of the some of the, the sort of conflict and noise. Yeah, so I would probably be, um, it would be a shame to let you go without talking to you about your social enterprise that you've been working with, which is Pivot, and also your position on uh, the Young Woman's Trust as a trustee as well. Talk to us a little bit about those before we, uh, before we call it a day. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, I know, it's really weird. I'm actually, I'm coming up on... Um, seven years as a trustee at Young Women's Trust. I've actually got my, my last board meeting next week. Um, which oh, so is, you're finishing um, up now? Yeah, so we normally only have trustees do six years as a mm. term, um, and I stayed on for an extra year. But yeah, unfortunately, good governance means I'm now coming, coming to an end. Um, but, you know, that is also... Um, I like I'm really passionate about younger women and I do you know so whilst I haven't had some of the um some of the experiences directly myself there are definitely things I can relate to um so you know uh so I've always done a lot of coaching and mentoring for women and um you know stuff like asking for pay rises it is a really you know it's it's a traditional thing that's often said but it is true like women kind of expect silently that you know they'll get rewarded and they don't ask in the same way um and also they won't go for jobs that they don't feel like they have all the skills for um and so you know and and young women's trust is um yeah I've loved um you know and then the women we work with particularly are like much more disadvantaged um you know trapped in low or no pay but that's been a really rewarding opportunity and one of the things I particularly loved was that um we brought two of our beneficiaries onto the board and I got to mentor them and watching them kind of grow and become trustees has been amazing and you know that's kind of kept my campaigning side up when I moved out of the kind of comsy space Mm. for my day job um, yeah, and I'm loving working with a small social enterprise at the moment. There's something really, you know, Talk Talk was, um, it's funny because although it was a FTSE 150, FTSE 250, we were very small. So like you got your hands dirty, right? Like it wasn't, yeah, yeah. it wasn't a lot of, you know, there weren't many people around to do a lot of stuff. So I really, like I'd always been brought up in that sense of like you roll your sleeves up and you get stuff done, you do stuff yourself. Um, And so, yeah, being in a small business, small social enterprise, there are four of us at the moment. Um, You know, you you like small. Yeah, no, we're teeny. It's lovely. Um, (laughs) And and so you like you roll your sleeves up. So I'm all over Squarespace at the moment. Um, (laughs) It is amazing, by the way. Like, no, you know no code like just generally it is incredible that I can go oh I really want to do this to the website and just play around with it it is like oh yeah it's very cool I mean it's it's yeah yeah. I do remember saying to you at various points like why don't we just buy Wix or or Shopify (laughs) Mm. yeah absolutely would have simplified a lot of things in some respects exactly (laughs) um complicated them in others as well I imagine but um Yes. Anyway, so tell yeah, tell so, us a bit more about Pivot. So Pivot's focusing on homelessness. Yeah. So 
It was started um, about a year ago and um, it was basically born out of um, a hostel in North London. So um, often when people think about homelessness, you think about rough sleeping and, you know, clearly that is the most visible um, and, you know, the sort of most dangerousness, but there's a huge amount of like hidden homelessness behind that. So people who, um, you know, are sofa surfing um, or people living in temporary accommodation. And although the government don't publish stats about it anymore, the sort of last data from a couple of years ago is that, um, you know, 60, I think it's 65% of people in London stay in temporary accommodation for more than six months. So it's not that temporary. <laughs> you know, wow. you've got people who are staying there for years. And it's a, it's a mix. There's been a big rise in like bed and breakfast accommodation, but there are ho- a lot of hostels. Um, so our hostel, I think, is like 140. Our main hostel we work with is like 140 bed. And, um, you know, you're, so you wait on benefits, not working, trying to get back into work. But it's tough. So, you, you know, you are more likely to have mental health problems like there are, you know, there are challenges. So flexibility. And I've been thinking about flexibility quite a lot recently in relation to the pandemic, because we're all super excited about this rise of homeworking. But the reality is it's a very privileged thing to get to be able to work from home. Lots of jobs you can't work from home. Right. Like it's it is a, it is the kind of it is the luxury of the middle class white collar, you know, um and yeah like small stuff you know the hostel serves your meals you don't have kitchens so and they come at they're served at a certain time so if your job won't give you flexibility in your hours you don't get your supper <laughs> so you know there's like there's stuff like that and you've got so the idea came from kind of how can we is there a way of like bringing sort of employment work opportunities into the hostel rather oh, right, than okay. having to leave and mm. go out to work and also how um alice our founder is you know has always been like very creative and made stuff and the kind of thing about actually there's something hugely rewarding about making things and you know in our case taking a you know dirty piece of metal and turning it into a beautiful finished product that somebody wants to buy um, and so we, yeah, we do, and we do training all the way through from like designing the jewelry to how do you market, how do you sell, how do you style photography. Um, we will do. We were we've done a couple of pop ups um, and markets, and we'll do more of those. And we did one at Westfield over Christmas before lo- lockdown came back. Um, and our makers come and do that. And um, we've hired one of our graduates. He's now living in a, um, he's moved out of the hostel. He's in a kind of um, in-between place while he's trying to get a rented private rental accommodation. Um, and he's now working with us and he's going to train other makers. And uh, yeah, so it's a social firm. Wow, so that's great. Of, yeah, sale of all the jewellery and products, um, funds, running more courses and um, yeah, we we basically financially support the makers, the equivalent of the London living wage, and um, yeah. Wow! And so, how how can people learn a bit more about it, get involved? Yes, so website or social media, and um, yeah, it's on social. We are um, at Make Pivot, um, and website is makepivot.org. Great, and we'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no. And it's, um, do you know what it's, uh, there's something really amazing, you know, the feedback we get from people, it's just like, there's something about learning a new skill and like making something and creating and like going actually, wow, like I can do something completely different. And it's not that we're trying to create like a, you know, an, 
an army of jewelers it's more <laughs> kind of showing you that actually like you know you can you can you can create and make and I suppose actually that was quite a lot of what we were talking about on the podcast with digital that's why I think oh absolutely I think it's it, um yeah massive parallels there I think you know the 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 learning the making and the um experimenting really it, it it's it's very um mentally rewarding totally and especially if you're solving homelessness at the same time um it's a know, big could, problem Yes. Yeah, I don't know if we are, we're, and I, you know, that's one of the amazing things, right? It's really funny. We um, we uh, were speaking at an event this week and there was another, there's another social enterprise there that's a um, brilliant one who also does, has a similar kind of similar model, but mm. is um, in the food sector. Um, and the um, members of the hostel go out to work physically with them, whereas we're in and you kind of go, you know, I was having this funny conversation with our founder Alice, where she was a bit like, oh, you know, I hope people don't just think we've like copied each other's models and, you know, are we just like a, you know, poor imitation of them? And you kind of go, well, let like the nice thing about when you have a social cause, you're kind of like, there's more than enough to. Yeah, when it comes to more than enough to go around, right? Yeah, like, sad, you know, sad enough as it is, when it comes to homelessness, I, you know, it, it needs as many people, people to get involved as exactly. possible. And I think that is the lovely thing about the social enterprise sector is that you've got the kind of commercial business innovation. Um, you know, there are more people, there's more tech for good, you know, kind of stuff coming out. But also like there's a bit of a, you lose a bit of that comp- hard competitive edge, like yeah. when you're trying to sell broadband to the same people as Sky and BT. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. you're just you're not competing in no, quite no, the same way as you yeah. are when you're a commercial business um a pure commercial business and i um yeah i really like that great well i think we'll wrap up there thank you very much for your time alex it's been lovely to talk to you it's been so nice being back with you i feel like if anybody has particularly enjoyed this they should just hire chris and i to <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely we can come as a pair yes exactly (laughs) nice like it all right well thank you very much for your time anyway it's been a pleasure talking to you and people can get more involved with pivot on the at the website and on socials and we'll put those links again in the show notes